0: Good morning. Thank you. It's a beautiful day. Thank you for coming uh, here uh, on uh, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. That's very impressive that you'd want to spend your weekend doing this with us. Uh, I'm Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton University. And this is our uh, second day uh, and last day of our conference conference on uh, civic religion and democratic polities in Europe and the United States. We had a rousing good time of it yesterday and are looking forward to another terrific uh, set of discussions today. I uh, would like to introduce uh, my colleague and friend, Professor Colleen Sheehan, who will be moderating our first panel today. Uh, Professor Sheehan is an associate professor of Politics at Villanova University, a former visiting fellow in the James Madison Program, and is currently a visiting professor here at Princeton, uh, teaching a wonderful course on early American statesmanship for the Department of Politics that the Madis- Madison Program is very pleased to be sponsoring through the department. So with uh, no further ado, let me, ins- let me give you a Colleen Sheehan.
1: thanks very much brad it's great to be back here at my uh, home away from home it's a uh, another glorious spring day in the northeast and i understand tomorrow is going to be even nicer Um, but it's not so bad to be inside for a little bit talking about the the kinds of things that maurizio has put together and thank you for having me here maurizio The panel this morning is on the topic America and its civic religion. Our presenters are Wilfred McClay and Dan Mahoney. Wilfred McClay received his PhD from John Hopkins University and is currently professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he holds the SunTrust Bank Chair of Excellence in Humanities. His book, The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, received the 1995 Merle Curtis Award of the Organization of American Historians for the best book in American intellectual history. He has received numerous fellowships and awards, including those from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. In 1997, 98, he was named to the Templeton Honor Rolls. Professor McClay is a member of the National Council of the Humanities and of the advisory board for the National Endowment for the Humanities. He is a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Dan Mahoney received his PhD from Catholic University. He is professor of political science at Assumption College and Professor Mahoney has published numerous books. Among them, a book on Juvenal, The Conservative Liberal and Illusions of Modernity, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology, De Gaulle, Statesmanship, Grandeur, and Modern Democracy, and the Liberal Political Political Science of Raymond Aron. He is also co-editor of a forthcoming book entitled Sol- the Solzhenitsyn Reader, New and Essential Writings, 1947 to 2005. Professor Mahoney is Associate Editor of Perspectives on Political Science and Book Review Editor of Society. In 1999, Professor Mahoney was awarded the Prix Erone. Each panelist will speak for about 30 or 35 minutes, and I mention this now. Uh, because I will keep time, I want there to be ample time for questions and discussion. Uh, I'm happy to present to you Professor McClay.
2: Thank you Colleen and uh, thank all of you for coming out on uh, Saturday, a beautiful Saturday morning. I hope that our talks won't make you wish that you had gone somewhere else. Uh, Uh, On such a beautiful day. uh, At the outset, I want to say I feel some uh, trepidation uh, coming into this conversation in Medius Race because uh, I I didn't arrive until six o'clock yesterday for Jean Elstein's uh, talk, and uh, just listening to the questions and answers, I realized that I had walked into an already uh, dense and interesting, uh, thick discussion. Uh, so I'm you know, feeling a little like the anthropologist who sort of traipsed into the, into the uh, uh, a setting I knew very little about. Here I, here I go with my own remarks, which may or may not address themselves to uh, the things that you all have already talk, been talking about. Uh, so forgive me if I seem a little uh, oblique to, to those things. Uh, I'll, I'll try to catch on fast. Um, and my talk is in some ways a defense of civil religion uh, of American civil religion in particular, uh, an effort to characterize it uh, in, in, in its uh, better acceptations and, uh, and also its uh, its less attractive ones uh, um, I may say civil religion and although the title of the the panel is civic religion, and I've never really uh, understood whether there's any distinction between the two. Some people seem to favor one term over the other. Will Herberg, for example, in his famous book, Protestant Catholic Jew, which I'm going to mention in my um, remarks, uh, uses the term civic religion. I, I don't uh, make a differentiation between them. If I should, I trust someone will tell me tell me that I should and why. So... Uh, let me begin. In the, in the wake of the terrorist attacks uh, of 9-11, uh, Americans suddenly found themselves with uh, a choice between two radically different ways of understanding the proper role of religion in modern Western society. For some observers, the only logical c- conclusion to draw from 9-11 was uh, that all religions, and particularly the great monotheisms, Constitute an ever-present threat to the peace and order and liberty of modern Western civil life. And so uh, the, the events of 9-11 seem to confirm that religion is, religion is uniquely and incorrigibly toxic. It breeds irrationality, demonization of others, division, conflict. Uh, the essential character of the, of the West in this view is its tolerant secularism. To settle for anything less than that uh, is to court disaster. After all, weren't the events of 9-11 the ultimate example of a faith-based initiative? How (laughs) many more examples do we need? But this, of course, was far from being the only or even the dominant response. Many other Americans had a very different uh, reaction, feeling that uh, such a heinous and frighteningly nihilistic act (laughs) went so far beyond the usual psychological categories that it could only be explained by resort to an older pre-secular vocabulary, one that included the numinous concept of evil and that could only be addressed or could only be redeemed by reference to religious uh, points of reference. In this view, if 9-11 uh, uh, was to be taken as a, uh, uh, an indictment of religious mind's fanatical tendencies, it might um, be more, more properly taken as an illustration of the secular mind's explanatory poverty. If there was incorrigible fault to be found, it was less in the structure of the world's great religions than in the labyrinth of the human heart, which in fact is a fault that the great religions, and particularly Christianity, have always had a great deal to say about. Even among those willing to invoke the concept of evil in its proper religious habitat, there was disagreement. A handful of prominent Christian leaders, notably Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, were unable to resist comparing the falling towers of Manhattan to the biblical towers of Babel and saw in the 9-11 attacks God's judgment on the moral and social evils of contemporary America and the withdrawal of his favor. In a sense, they, these uh, these, these, uh, Christian leaders, these particular Christian leaders, were the mere opposites of their foes, seizing on 9-11 as a pretext for re-proclaiming the toxicity of American secular life. But their view was not typical either. And in fact, it was so widely regarded as reckless and ill-considered that it seems to have permanently damaged their credibility, which was not high in many quarters already. Um, The more common public reaction in America was something much simpler and much more primal. Millions of Americans went to church, searching there for reassurance, for comfort, for solace, for strength, for some shred of redemptive meaning uh, in the act of sharing their grief and confusion in the presence of the transcendent. And you all remember, inside and outside the churches, in windows, on lapels, American flags were suddenly everywhere in evidence, strains of God bless America wafting through the air, other patriotic songs that praised America while soliciting the blessings of the deity. The pure secularists and the pure religionists were the exceptions in this phenomenon. For most Americans, it was inconceivable that the comforts of their religious heritage and the well-being of their nation could be in any fundamental way at odds with one another. Hence, it can be said that 9-11 produced for a time a great revitalization of the American civil religion, which is that strain of American piety that bestows many of the elements of religious sentiment and faith on the fundamental political and social institutions of the United States. Such a tendency to conflate the realms of the religious and the political has hardly been unique to American life and history. Uh, One could say that the achievement of a stable relationship between the two is one of the chief tasks of uh, social existence, a perennial task. In the West, uh, the social influence of Christianity has had a lot to say about the particular way the two have interacted over the centuries. Uh, From its beginning, the Christian faith insisted on separating the claims of Caesar and the claims of God, recognizing the legitimacy of both, although placing loyalty to God above loyalty to the state. The Christian was to be in the world, but not of the world, living as a responsible, law-abiding citizen in the city of man while reserving his ultimate loyalty for the city of God. Such a separation and hierarchy of loyalties which sundered the unity that was characteristic of the classical world, had the effect of marking out a distinct secular realm, although at the same time confining its claims. For Americans, this dualism has manifested itself as an even more decisive commitment to something called the separation of church and state, a slogan that has been taken by many to be the cardinal principle governing American politics and religion. Yet the persistence of an energetic American civil religion and, uh, uh, and other instances in which the boundaries of the two become blurred suggests that the matter is not nearly so simple as the slogan would have it. There is and always has been considerable room in the American experiment for the conjunction of religion and state or religion and public life. This is a proposition that committed religious believers and committed secularists alike find deeply worrisome. And understandably so, because it carries with it the risk that each of the respective realms can be contaminated by the presence of its opposite number. But it's futile to insist that the proper boundaries between religion and politics can be fixed once and for all, for all times and cultures, by an abstract fiat. Instead, their relationship evolves out of a process of constant negotiation and renegotiation, responsive to the changing needs of the culture and the moment we seem to be going through just such a process at present as the renegotiation of boundaries continues fast and furious. Thinking only of, for example, cases before the Supreme Court, uh, the the issue of the display of the Ten Commandments in public, the faith-based initiative alluded to before, uh, the controversies over the institution of marriage, which has always been both a religious and a civil institution. There's a multitude of these issues in play and it's hard to predict how the results will look when the dust settles, if it ever does. But experience suggests that we, should, we would be well advised to steer clear of two equally dangerous extremes, which serve as landmarks in our discussion about uh, religion and the nation-state. First, we should avoid the total identification of the two, of uh, religion and the nation-state which would in practice mean the complete domination of one by the other, a theocratic or ideological totalitarianism in which religious believers completely subordinate themselves to the apparatus of the state or vice versa, the state subordinated to religion. But second, the second pitfall, uh, equally important to avoid, we should not aspire to a, a total segregation of the two which would, in practice, bring about unhealthy estrangement between and among Americans, leading, in turn, to extreme forms of sectarianism, otherworldliness, uh, cultural separatism, and Gnosticism, a state of affairs in which certain groups, uh, certain religious believers, will regard the state with pure antagonism, or vice versa. Religion and the nation are inevitably entwined, and some degree of entwining So I'm arguing, it's a good thing. After all, the self-regulative pluralism of American culture cannot work without the ballast of certain elements of deep commonality. But just how much, and when, and why, those are the hard questions to answer, and very hard to answer abstractly or categorically. So let me take a closer look at the concept of civil religion, which is admittedly very much a scholar's word. It's It's something that arises in the parlance of academics. uh, But it describes something that has existed ever since the first organized human communities. It's a very imprecise term, maddeningly imprecise term, which can mean several things at once. But basically, civil religion is a way of investing a particular set of political or social arrangements with an aura of the sacred, thereby elevating their stature and enhancing their stability. It can serve as a point of reference for the shared faith of an entire state or nation, focusing on the most generalized and widely held beliefs about the history and destiny of that state or nation. As such, it provides much of the social glue that binds together society through well-established symbols, rituals, celebrations, places, etc. It's a sacred canopy, in Peter Berger's words, uh, a focal point for shared memories of struggle and survival. Although it borrows extensively from the society's dominant religious traditions, it is not itself a highly particularized religion, but instead a somewhat more blandly inclusive one, into whose highly general stories and propositions those various particular faiths can read and project their own contents. It is, so to speak, a highest common denominator. The phenomenon of civil religion extends back at least to classical antiquity and certainly uh, notably to the Romans' state cult, which made the emperor into an object of worship himself, an example that suggests some of the dangers. But the term itself appears in recognizably modern form in Rousseau's Le Contrat Social*, book four, chapter eight, where it was put forward as a means of cementing the people's allegiance to their polity. Uh, Rousseau recognized the importance of religious sentiment in this regard but deplored the influence of Christianity because it divided citizens' loyalties for exactly the reasons I've already stated and might lead them to neglect worldly concerns in favor of spiritual ones. Christians made bad soldiers because they were more willing to die than to fight. So Christianity clearly would not do. Instead, the state should should impose its own custom-tailored religion, which provides a, frankly, utilitarian function. It should be as simple as possible with only a few, mainly positive beliefs, uh, having to do with the existence of God, the afterlife, and uh, proscribing intolerance. Citizens could have their own peculiar little beliefs about metaphysical matters as long as they had no worldly consequence. But, as Rousseau said, whoever dares to say outside the church no salvation Ought to be driven from the state. Uh, Needless to say, such a manipulative approach to this problem has not attracted universal approval, uh, nor has the concept of civil religion, and it's not hard to see why. One of the most powerful and enduring critiques came uh, some two centuries after Rousseau from the American scholar Will Herberg uh, in his book, A Protestant Catholic Jew in 1955. And he uh, he said that the civic religion, as he called it, of America, had lost its prophetic edge. It had become quote the sanctification of the society and culture of which it's a reflection. The Jewish and religious Jewish and Christian traditions had always always regarded such religion as idolatrous, because again quoting him, it validates culture and society without, in any sense, bringing them under judgment. So, it doesn't uh, afflict the comfortable, uh, it it comforts the comfortable. Uh, It does not hold the mirror up to our sinful and corrupt ways. Instead, again, final quotation, it comes to serve as a spiritual reinforcement of national self-righteousness. It's the handmaiden of national arrogance and moral complacency. Such the indictment of civil religion, but civil religion has and has had its defenders. Notably, uh, the sociologist Robert Bella, who put the term really on the intellectual map in America, arguing in an influential 1967 article that that Herberg uh, was not telling the whole story. The American civil religion was something deeper and more worthy of respectful study, a body of symbols and beliefs that was not merely watered down Christianity, but had a seriousness and integrity of its own. Uh, Beginning with an examination of John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, Bella detected in the the American civil religious tradition a durable and morally challenging theme, quote, the obligation, both collective and individual, to carry out God's will on earth, close quote. Hence, Bella took a much more positive view of that tradition, uh, though not denying its potential pitfalls. Against the critics, he argued that civil religion, at its best, had a genuine apprehension of universal and transcendent religious reality (laughs) as seen in or reflected in the experience of the American people. It was a standard against which the nation could be held accountable. Uh, For Bella, as for others, the deepest source of the American civil religion was the Puritan-derived notion of America as a new Israel, a covenant people, with a divine mandate to restore the purity of the early apostolic church and thus as a godly model for the restoration of the world. Uh, John Winthrop's famous uh, 1630 sermon to his fellow settlers of Massachusetts Bay in which he envisioned their plantation, as he called it, as a city on a hill, a city upon a hill, is the locus classicus of this understanding of American chosenness. It was only natural that over time, or at least in retrospect it seems only natural, that, that uh, this sense of historical destiny would eventually uh, extend uh, to a, a more secular understanding of the country's uh, mission, uh, the lang- in the, how easily the secular ideas of the Declaration of Independence and the language of liberty could be incorporated into the same portfolio. The same mix of convictions can be found animating the rhetoric of the American Revolution, the vision of manifest destiny, the crusading zeal of antebellum abolitionists, the benevolent imperialism of van uh, apostles of Christian civilization, the fervent idealism of President Woodrow Wilson at the time of the First World War, and uh, perhaps the list can be extended. Um, American civil religion also has its sacred scriptures such as the uh, Mayflower Compact, the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Gettysburg Address, the Pledge of Allegiance. It has its great narratives of struggle from the suffering of George Washington at Valley Forge, the flag planting at Iwo Jima, the valor of Jeremiah Denton imprisoned in Hanoi. It has its special ceremonial and memorial occasions, such as the Fourth of July, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving Day, Martin Luther King Day, It has its temples and shrines and holy places, such as the Lincoln Memorial, the National Mall, the Capitol, the White House, Arlington National Cemetery, the great Civil War battlefields, great natural landmarks, such as the Grand Canyon. It has its sacred objects, notably the flag. It has its organizations, the veterans of foreign wars, the American Legion, Daughters of the American Revolution, the Boy Scouts. And it has its dramatis personae, chief among them being its military heroes and long succession of presidents, Uh, and so on. Uh, The public references to God, however, have always been nonspecific. From the very beginning of the nation's history, the nation's civil religious discourse was carefully calibrated to provide a meeting ground for both the Christian and Enlightenment elements in the thought of the revolutionary generation. One could see this non-specificity for example in the many examples of uh, presidential oratory from George Washington which are still cited today approvingly as civil religious texts but there's no doubt that civil religious references have broadened considerably since the time of the founding from generically Protestant to Catholic Protestant or Protestant Catholic to Judeo-Christian and now to in much of President Bush's rhetoric uh, Abrahamic and even just monotheistic in general. But what has not changed is the fact that such references still always convey a sense of God's providence, his blessing on the land, and therefore the nation's responsibility uh, consequent on that blessing. Every president feels obliged to embrace these sentiments and express them in oratory. Some are more enthusiastic than others. President Reagan, for example, was very enthusiastic. I think one would have to say President Bush surpasses even that standard and puts (laughs) forward a uh, civil religious vision of America with the greatest energy of any president since Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Just a few examples, probably familiar to you, Uh, his speech to the National Endowment for Democracy in which he said, quote, the advance of freedom is the calling of our time. It is the calling of our country. From the 14 points to the four freedoms to the speech at Westminster, America has put our power at the service of principle. Uh, In another speech to the Coast Guard Academy, he declared, the advance of freedom is a calling we follow, precisely because the self-evident truths of the American founding are true for all. So anyone who thought the American civil religion had died out uh, was simply not paying attention. Precisely because President Bush, who is arguably the most evangelical president in American history, uh, has used uh, such oratory, it has uh, inspired and discomfited many, sometimes even the same people. Uh, (laughs) For uh, Herberg's general critique of civil religion uh, still has considerable potency. It is clear, given the force field of tensions within which civil religion exists, that it has an inherently problematic relationship to any serious religious tradition, Christian or otherwise. At its best, it provides a secular point of contact for that faith, one that makes political institutions more responsive to calls for self-examination and repentance. At its worst, it can provide divine warrant to unscrupulous acts, cheapen religious language, turn clergy into robed flunkies of the state and the culture, and bring the simulacrum of religious awe into places where it doesn't belong. Indeed, if one were writing this account before 9-11, one might emphasize the degree uh, to which there has been a growing disenchantment with American civil religion, particularly in the wake of the Vietnam era. Bella himself, as is widely known, is withdrawn from association with the idea and seems slightly embarrassed by the fact that his scholarly reputation is so tied up with it. For many serious and committed Christians, there's been a growing sense that the American civil religion is a pernicious idol, antithetical to the practice of their faith. This has been true not only of liberal Christians who opposed American foreign policy in in Asia and uh, Latin America before that, and changes in American welfare policy, but also highly conservative Christians who have grown startlingly disaffected over their inability to change settled policies on social issues, such as abortion. And the religious right, as well as the religious left, the question has been posed with a growing frequency of the compatibility of Christianity with America. Such uh, multipolar disaffection found uh, expression, for example, in the remarkable popularity of an eighteen uh, eighty excuse me, 18, <laughs> 1989 book called Resident Aliens Life in the Christian Colony by the theologians Stanley Harwas and William Willimon. Both of them sophisticated liberal Methodists writing in a broadly Anabaptist tradition, the authors uh, articulated a starkly separationist position that was very consonant with the mood of many. Conservative and liberal Christians uh, in the Christian community in the 1990s. Their title came from Philippians 3:20: "We are a Commonwealth or Colony of Heaven." And the authors urged that churches think of themselves as colonies in the midst of an alien culture. Uh, their members re- resident aliens in that culture, in it but not of it. The culture war aspects of the Clinton impeachment only accentuated this sense among conservatives that the civil government had nothing to do with their faith and the President of the United States, the high priest of the civil religion was just another unredeemed guy, in fact rather worse in that respect than the norm. The combination of Clinton's moral lapses and his conspicuous Bible carrying and church going seemed proof positive to them that the American civil religion was not only false but genuinely pernicious. Then, with the controversial election of 2000 leaving the nation so bitterly divided and the eventual victor seemingly tainted forever, the prospects for the civil religion before 9-11 could hardly have looked bleaker. Just before the attacks occurred, Time magazine anointed Stanley Harawas as America's leading theologian, a potent sign of, of the state of things bellum. The attacks on 9-11 changed all of that decisively, though how permanently remains to be seen. The initial reaction of some religious conservatives to the attack, seeing them as divine retribution for national sins, were reflexive and unguarded expressions of the resident alien sentiment. But they were out of phase with the resurgence of civil religion, and their comments were viewed, fairly or unfairly, as a kind of national desecration. Indeed, it is remarkable how quickly the ailing civil religion sprang back to life, expressed especially through a multitude of impromptu church services held all over the country and instinctive melding <laughs> of the religious with the civil. Today, even today, over four years after the attacks, a substantial flow of visitors continues to make pilgrimage to the former World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan, now known forever as Ground Zero. It seems as if it may be forever before anything's constructed there. Uh, It remains, even now, a moving experience, even with all the wreckage cleared away and countless pieces of residual evidence removed or cleaned up. One still encounters in open and intense expressions of grief and rage and incomprehension in the other visitors and perhaps in oneself. It has become a shrine, a holy place, and has become assimilated thereby into the American civil religion. Yet, the single most moving sight, the most powerful and immediately understandable symbol, is the famous cross-shaped girder that was pulled out of the wreckage. Uh, and has been raised up as a cross. What, uh, one wonders, does it mean to the people viewing it, many of whom one presumes are not Christians and not even Americans? Was it a piece of nationalist kitsch or a sentimental relic? Was it a powerful witness to the redemptive value of suffering and thereby a signpost pointing towards the core of the Christian story? Or did it subordinate the Christian story to the American one and thereby undermine and betray its Christian meaning. Much of what is good about civil religion and much of what is bad and dangerous about it, even at its best, is summed up by the ambiguity of this image. Yet 9-11 reminded us of something that the best social scientists already knew, that the impulse to create and live inside of a civil religion is an irrepressible human impulse, and this is just as true in the age of the nation state. There can be better and worse ways of approaching it, but the need for it is not to be denied. The state is itself something more than just a secular institution, because it must sometimes call on its citizens for acts of sacrifice and self-overcoming, and not only in times of war. It must be able to draw on spiritual resources, deep attachments, reverent memories of the past, and visions of the direction of history to do its appropriate work. Ernest Renan put this very well in his justly celebrated essay, What is a Nation? Which I quote, the nation, like the individual, is the culmination of a long past of endeavors, sacrifice, and devotion. To have common glories in the past and to have a common will in the present. To have performed great deeds together to which to perform still more These are the essential conditions for being a people. A nation is therefore a large-scale solidarity, constituted by the feeling of the sacrifices that one has made in the past and of those that one is prepared to make in the future. Without such feelings, no nation can long endure, let alone wage a long and difficult struggle. Nothing in this formulation precludes the need for the civil religion to contain an element of transcendental accountability which should serve as a check on nationalistic excesses rather than as an enabler of them. Also, it should be stressed that civil religion can be a source of peaceable cohesion among different groups of different faiths, allowing them to bring some of their moral sensibility into public life and contribute to the making of a better society without causing conflict. At the same time, uh, one should be able to understand the disgust uh, felt towards civil religion by many serious Christians and other believers, and by serious non-believers. Even at its best, the proponent of civil religion seems to be arguing for a system of beliefs based on its consequences rather than its truth. Yet, by the same token, responsible critics of civil religion have to be willing to offer a serious and persuasive vision of what things could be like in this country or any country without it. The only real real alternatives are the extremes of fusion or alienation, extreme theocracy or extreme sectarianism. Such experiences would, at the very least, be without major precedent in American history. Indeed, there may be more to be feared from the remaining weakness of the civil religion than from its strength. Despite much public worrying about President Bush's easy resort to God talk, His oratory in fact lies well within the historical pattern of American civil religious discourse. Instead, in my view, it is the the unremittently negative reaction against it in some quarters that seems to have far less precedent. In addition, it's far too early to say that a settled alienation of religious believers from the American nation state is no longer a possibility. There is genuine danger the changes such as that envisioned in the Pledge of Allegiance controversy or radical changes in the definition of marriage or an unraveling of all traditional bioethical restraints may produce a situation in which large numbers of conservative Christians will conclude that their Christian beliefs no longer permit them to be loyal and obedient American citizens. A civil religion that proposed to incorporate such changes would no longer be able to command their loyalty Instead of being an instrument of national unity, it would be an instrument of national division. The alienation of the left would be a very small matter compared to this. In other words, the danger facing us in the years to come may be less from the triumphalism of civil religion, though that is always a danger, but from the real possibility that traditional religious believers will not see their values adequately reflected in the national creeds and institutions and such and will withdraw their affect as a result, with highly damaging consequences. This is a danger that even a committed secularist like John Dewey could see very clearly, and it's what made him plead with his fellow intellectuals not to mock church-going evangelicals and made him look for a, quote, common faith that would embrace the emotive content of religion without its divisive assertions. It was, I think, a bad idea, but not a badly intended one. In a pluralistic society, religious believers and non-believers alike need ways to live together, and to do so they need a second language of piety, one that reinforces their other commitments without undermining them. Yet it seems needlessly revolutionary, uh, not to mention artificial and futile, to invent a common faith as Rousseau proposed, when one is already readily at hand. Already fully invested with the very elements that Renan saw as requisite. To be sure, there's something secondary and unsatisfying and inherently dangerous about a civil religion. I concede this. But the alternative is dangerous too, and perhaps even more so. Thank you very much.
3: many thanks to the Madison Center for giving me this opportunity to participate in a timely and uh, instructive forum on civic religion and democratic politics we've heard a lot of talk over the last couple of days about civil religion as articulated by such diverse thinkers as Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Robert Bellah and i don't have the time to uh, to give a long discourse on the concept of civ- civil religion but I think it's fair to say that civil religion, at least of the sort discussed by Machiavelli in his discourses or Rousseau in uh, Book 4, Chapter 8 of the Social Contract, suggests a perspective on religion that is, to quote Rousseau, purely civil, an expression of social conscience without which it is impossible to, to be either a good citizen or loyal subject civil religion so understood readily collapses the distinction between the things of god and the things of caesar it instrumentalizes religion and eliminates the undeniable tension between the claims of transcendent religion with its recognition of the ultimate transpolitical destiny of human beings and the requirements, even the genuine requirements of civil society. It seems to me at the other extreme, and here I think my remarks are quite complementary to Bill's, one sees certain partisans of uh, conservative religion, of countercultural orthodoxy. I think of Stanley Harawass or some of the theorists of so-called radical orthodoxy, Who deny the legitimacy of any political approach to religion and see in patriotism and citizenship, however moderate, responsible, noble, public spirited, necessary, a form of idolatry. They cannot distinguish between authentic political or secular religions, which ask of men their souls and destroy human dignity. And I should point out, in light of some of our discussions yesterday, That the 20th century really showed, I think, that impious cruelty, you know, uh, uh, far more destructive of human lives of liberty than the pious cruelty excoriated by Machiavelli in Chapter 21 of The Prince. So uh, I think this this, uh, um, conservative critique of civil religion goes too far by denying the loyalties and obligations inherent in politics and citizens and such as somehow treating them as peripheral to the lives of the believer. Now, today I'd like to show how an authentically political approach to religion can do justice to both the things of God and the things of Caesar in no small part because politics and religion are both forms of what uh, the French Catholic poet and philosopher Charles Peggy called a communion, uh, another way I think of making Bill's point that politics is never merely secular. It's never reducible to interest group politics. Properly understood, such an understanding ought to convey an appre- of politics ought to convey an appreciation of the givenness of things, of man's rootedness of an order greater than the individual will. And I think in applying such a perspective to America, we immediately come across a stumbling block. As uh, I brought a copy of Orestes Brownson's 1866 work, The American Republic, a very eccentric and deep and reflective work by a 19th century American historian and, uh, and political theorist and religious thinker at various times was a Unitarian and a socialist and ended up as a Catholic Republican. Uh, but it's wor- worth—pardon wor- oh, oh, oh. Oh, me, big R. Big r. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm aware of that fact. But both small, small r, r and big R. 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 All right. Um, in uh, in his 1866 work, uh, *The American Republic*, which Peter Lawler introduced—the uh, most recent edition he can speak more authoritatively than I can. Branson uh, speaks about the state of nature doctrine the idea that political communities are artificial, the product of a contract, that uh, they're, they're free, free and equal individuals form a political community and can dissolve that political community. He, uh, he, he refers to that as being the quote-unquote political tradition of the country. Uh, how does one reconcile such a constructivist approach, which emphasizes the merely conventional origins of civil society, and political authority that valorizes individual consent above everything else. And by the way, in its extreme, extreme forms, I us say Hobbes and Leviathan treats good and evil themselves as a product of the contract. How does one reconcile this with a sober appreciation of the requirements of the political common good? The state of nature doctrine, which is at least presupposed by Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, can readily, even naturally, give rise to claims of self ownership, to the belief that men are, the, are their own matter, the manner and maker of their own political and personal destinies. So, what I want to suggest provisionally and at a minimum is that the doctrinal foundations of American liberty are. Inherently ambiguous and are open to wildly contrasting interpretations. The Declaration can legitimately be read as a, uh, in, in light of a kind of conservative or traditional reading. There are truths above the human will, sempiternal truths about the human condition and the order of things. But it can also be given a conventionalist or constructivist reading. Human beings make their own political orders and can dissolve them uh, accordingly. Uh, One doesn't want to leave things at this. Any cursory examination of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, or the statesmanship of Lincoln, for example, makes clear that the American Republic is endowed with rich moral and civic resources such constitutive american premises as the idea that all men are created equal that legitimate government rests upon the consent of the governed and that individuals are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights that frame and liberate the exercise of popular sovereignty readily come to mind lincoln powerfully illuminated the moral possibilities inherent in the declaration's affirmation of human equality the ways in which the fact of human equality gives rise to a moral obligation to respect the rights and dignity of others. I would not be the first commentator to point out that with uh, with Lincoln, equality becomes the telos of a Republican regime, a moral and political proposition to be ever more closely approximated. Sounds like Kant's idea of reason. Lincoln's propositional view of equality does seem to resemble one of these ideas of reason, such as perpetual peace that regulate and guide human contact toward the ever greater realization of the abstract idea. But even in Lincoln's highly moralized understanding of democracy, and I quote from an 1858 private note he wrote to, he wrote to himself, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. That was Lincoln's simple explication of his idea of democracy. I still say there's much formality and hence indetermination. Our natural rights republic, like all modern liberal regimes, is rich with moral content, but that content is defined in a remarkably formal or tautological way. Human beings are rights bearing individuals and hence worthy of respect. That is the unchallenged faith of modern democracy in all its forms. We speak endlessly about human rights, but have difficulty saying very much about the nature of man, of this human being whose duty we must respect. Now, it's undoubtedly true that earlier forms of liberal political theory, I'm not talking about modern academic liberal theory, which is pretty myopic and narrow and talks to itself, uh, not, not to mention the Moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant did not hesitate to make serious moral demands on liberal citizens. John Locke, perhaps the single most important architect, or at least an important architect of modern Anglo-American constitutionalism, believed that rational liberty, which begins with the indetermination of our human nature and the myriad ways in which we make ourselves, even in our moral constitution, that's a pretty radical idea, as in his essay, Needs to be supported by inherited forms of moral understanding rooted in prejudice or public opinion. The American founders generally agreed, whatever their differences, that Republican government had certain prerequisites that were dependent upon traditions and habits that antedated the theory and practice of representative government. A good example of this can be found in Washington's discussion of the salutary effects of. Uh, civic effects of religious belief in his uh, farewell address. And Tocqueville famously suggested that the spirit of, not an American of course, but sort of an honorary one I suppose, famously suggested that the spirit of liberty needed to be accompanied by the spirit of religion, even if democratic religion is forced to adjust itself to the circumstances and exigencies of a democratic age. All this said, it is difficult to contest the fact that liberalism in practice inevitably erodes the moral capital or inheritance which is, essential, which is essential to its well-being. Tocqueville, the wise and sober friend of American democracy, is the best guide to the fruits of democracy's essential indetermination. He insisted that democracy needs an art of liberty, including that spirit of religion to check its egalitarian and relativistic nature. In his view, the nature of democracy inexorably erodes the moral contents of pre-democratic, excuse me, uh, of, of pre-democratic intellectual and spiritual life and even threatens the essential humanity of democratic man. Tocqueville with, with his concerns about the enervation of democratic man anticipated, though in an infinitely more responsible way, Nietzsche's critique of the last man. Now in contrast, contemporary moral and political theory in both its respectable Anglo-American liberal outpost and in its continental Kantian ones, or neo-Kantian ones, champions this indetermination as the true ground of human freedom and responsibility. In this understanding of the moral foundations of democracy indebted to Kant, but shorn of his very demanding morality The emphasis is placed on the self-determining or autonomous character of moral choice. Human beings are worthy of respect because they are capable of moral agency, but this agency is emptied of any other content than the act of willing or choosing itself. The French political theorist Luc Ferry goes so far as to insist that the foundation of human dignity is rooted in man's nothingness, in his transcendence of all natural or divine determination. Kant's categorical imperative to treat others as in themselves is still reflected in contemporary liberalism's emphasis on toleration and mutual respect and understanding. But in practice, modern toleration, modern humanism risks becoming a rather indulgent form of humanitarianism. Compassion is by its very nature egalitarian and open to demagogic manipulation. It's open-ended. You can feel sorry for everyone and everything. It contributes to the pantheistic tendencies within democracy powerfully diagnosed by Tocqueville by undermining the natural human capacity to distinguish between the highest and lowest in man and between human beings and that which is above and below them. Compassion does not even discriminate between the suffering of human beings and animals as the politicized compassion of the growing animal rights movement makes abundantly clear every day. So where does this leave us? Um, Liberal democracy is certainly a legitimate and more than legitimate political order but also one that poses some grave threats to the integrity of the human soul and the stability of the social order. On the one hand, its principles of freedom and equality are a powerful force for resisting tyranny and opposing injustices. But on the other hand, liberalism is largely silent about the sources of human obligation. In the long run, the silence acts as an acid, eroding natural and legitimate authority in the church, the family, and the political community. For a while, liberalism's subversive logic was kept in check by rational Christianity, that hodgepodge of enlightenment principles and Christian morality promoted by Locke and by some of the American founders. But this was an unstable mix that was bound to unravel. Liberalism is shadowed uh, by a debilitating skepticism about the human good. It gives rise to a moral and cultural relativism that is ultimately destructible, destructive of both the pursuit of truth and of the ra- rational recognition of the superiority of liberal democracy to various forms of tyranny. Um, now, in Tocqueville's judgment, religion is something of an antidote to these tendencies, as he argues in Democracy in America, it can come to the aid of democracy by broadening and deepening the horizons of democratic man. Religious faith moderates democratic man's debilitating skepticism and encourages him to take a larger view of life and of his moral and civic responsibilities. Above all, it reminds democratic man that he is a soul for which he is responsible, and duties that are not exhausted by the endless pursuit of material satisfactions. Um, But we only need to look around us to see that religion is also profoundly affected by the drift of modern liberty toward compassion, autonomy, and a humanitarian ethic and ethos. Um, There is something hegemonic about the liberal democratic aspiration to autonomy. The modern principle of autonomy seems to know no restraint. Um, uh, Liberty under God or liberty under some natural order needs to be rooted in an objective moral order that liberal democracy has increasing difficulty acknowledging or validating the danger is that a too ready Christian acceptance of an understanding of human dignity rooted in personal autonomy will ultimately subvert the natural sense of gratitude on which all genuine religion rests. And will thus undermine the salutary political effects of religion noted and championed by Tocqueville. The religious believer knows that he is a debtor. The autonomous self, in contrast, experiences no gratitude for the givenness of the world. Um, there is no alternative but to pursue the Sisyphean task of articulating um, the. Uh, the public philosophy or the civic religion of the free society. Uh, if Tocqueville is right, democracy is our fated circle, the social and political circumstance in which our present moral and political choices unfold. The task for those who reject the self-assertion of radical modernity, this indeterminate conception of freedom, who refuse to genuine, gen, uh, genuflect before the claims of the autonomous self, is to present their case in a way that is compelling to modern man without succumbing to the democratic faith in human (coughs) autonomy. Christians and other supporters of a traditional moral order have no choice but to contest for the soul of democracy while appreciating that the battle can never be completely won and often seems as if it is being lost. So how is the believer, any partisan of what Tocqueville called liberty under God and the law to approach this essential indetermination of modern liberty? One path, I think both uh, salutary and necessary, is to attempt to articulate a public philosophy that truly makes sense of the noblest affirmations of the American founding and founding documents. The aforementioned Orestes-Brownson was a critic of the state of nature doctrine, as I pointed out, on philosophical grounds. He believed that it could not do justice to the fact that foundings and political authority presuppose an already existing people, uh, what he called a providential constitution that guides and limits the free will of legislators. In other words, one doesn't create political orders ex nihilo. If Brownson was no friend of the doctrine of natural rights, he nevertheless believed that rights existed by nature and were crucial to the common good of a free people. How does one explain this seeming paradox? For one thing, Brownson believed that the Declaration's emphasis on the purely human origin of government ultimately gave rise to an unfettered and debilitating individualism that taught statesmen and citizens alike that they are petty gods of some sort. Such a spirit is incompatible with a true republic that recognizes the rights of God as well as the rights of man. In Brownson's view, the American Declaration was no, in no way wrong to assert that, a nation, that our nation exists to protect rights. But in his view, it did not sufficiently root those rights in a recognition that no man owns himself. And therefore, has no right to control, manipulate, or own others. So, you might say for contemporary moral theorists, liberal theorists, uh, uh, human beings uh, have rights, ought to respect others, because everyone's autonomous and completely free. For Brownson, uh, a Republican pol- political community is just in accord with our nature because we don't own ourselves, and therefore have no right to own and control anyone else. Okay, okay It's a very different conception. The opposite, no one has, to, to come back to the term Gene used yesterday, It's based on a rejection of self-sovereignty, right? And so what I want to suggest is that in our founding principles, there's an inherent tension between these two poles of self-ownership and self-sovereignty. It's there. It's a real tension. It's perfectly good, as, perfectly healthy and necessary as many traditional-minded defenders of the American Republican order, Catholics like Brownson and John Courtney Murray in the 20th century have tried to do to emphasize the, self, the, 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 the traditional pole, to criticize indetermination, to talk about truce, to try, to try to give a philosophical, a deeper and more coherent philosophical foundation to the truths that are referred to in the Declaration of Independence. But, uh, uh, so this, a determinate conception of liberty and political obligation will always have to compete, uh, but, but it will always have to compete with radically individualistic and indeterminate conceptions of human freedom. And of course such understandings have powerful support and inspiration in the main currents of philosophical modernity but I want to suggest this is the last part of my talk that there's another complementary way of shoring up the moral foundations of a liberal Republican order it is necessary of course to challenge from my perspective at least to challenge and contest the indeterminate interpretations of human liberty. Um, I think it's wise and salutary to have a less one-sided interpretation of of the liberal Republican order. In other words, one that places less emphasis on autonomy, consent, individualism. More emphasis needs to be placed on what Rusty Brownson called the providential constitution, the fact that the American people, like all political peoples, live in a territorial democracy rooted in a particular territory and particular traditions that are indebted to uh, older traditions of common law and moral wisdom that informed the constitutional founding of 1787. This nation was founded, but it was not created ex nihilo. It was not a it was not a product of pure will, but of wise and prudent statesmanship, of legislators who freely accepted certain historical constraints, as well as a rich civilized patrimony as the starting point for their political and constitutional deliberations. You have some hint of this, well, let's say, in uh, Jay's <laughs> this number two. Sorry about that. Brownson could not agree with French reactionaries such as Joseph de Mestre, who denied civic re- free will altogether, therefore denied the possibility of a political founding. I don't know if you know uh, Mestre's rather... Uh, in, uh, Deliciously reactionary book, *The Considerations on France* (1797), where he mocks the very idea of political founding. Uh, Political communities are never founded; they're they're, they're always a result of a kind of sociological mixing. And his proof, by the way, of the impossibility of creating ex nihilo is Washington D.C. Said this (laughs) absurdity that you can invent a capital city; it will take root. Well, you know, there's maybe a little something to that idea that we couldn't completely create. The capital city, uh, but uh, so Brownson rejected this this position that founding in principle was impossible, although he believed founding needed to be rooted in this more traditional understanding of a prov- providential constitution. He reminded us that our freedom is both a gift from God and an inheritance from our forebears. America is a nation after all, and our civic tradition rightly draws sustenance from the mystic chords of memory, to quote Lincoln, the sacrifices, commitment, and ennobling dedication of those who came before us. As the French political philosopher Pierre Menon suggests in a bracing new book, La Raison des Nations, it's a book that addresses Europe's present discontents and argues that there's a connection between Europe's, the aspiration of a post-national humanitarian democracy, Europe's depoliticization, its de-Christianity, But he suggests the nation, and he warns against Europeans simply thinking they can have democracy without the nation. They can have a simply post-national humanitarian democracy. Why does he criticize this? Well, the nation, as Manant says, introduces a communion, I quote, more vast and profound than found in individualistic philosophy. It connects the present to the immemorial past and to the indefinite future. By the way, Manant. Said, talks about Renan's very admirable formulation about the nation, but he faults him. He says the idea of the plebiscite of every day. And he says that goes, no, the nation isn't just a plebiscite of every day because that's, that's, that's too individualistic. Um, that's why
2: I left that out.
3: Good. Uh, <laughs> in Renan's view, political liberty needs and presupposes a body or framework that, quote, allows us to, respond to the double solicitude of the future and the past in their unanswerable and their unmasterable amplitude, unquote. This civic framework allows us to live, quote, with equal ardor in the past, the present, and the future, unquote. Political liberty, so understood and as practiced within the nation or territorial democracy, is the mediator of mediators because it allows free and civilized people to tie together quote, communion and consent, unquote. It's civilized patrimony with the free work of free men. There's thus a kind of sacredness inherent in the political as such, a communion that informs and underlies the political common good. Again, a different way I think of getting at a point that Bill made in his remarks. And as Monant reminds us, such an understanding is at odds, both with a civil religion, narrowly understood, but also with a false and arbitrary separation of all things religious and political. Politics and religion can never be cons- completely separated because they are both, and again I quote Monant, modalities of communion, unquote. And I'll give, since I just read Pierre uh, Pyrrmanant's book and was inspired by it, I'll give him the last word, a way of linking some of our uh, uh, American discussions with an unfashionable French discussion. Um, quote, if the, spirit, if the separation of church and state is precious as a rule of our actions, it becomes ruinous if we make it the rule of our thought. Politics and religion can never are never entirely separate or separable. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Bill and Dan. Questions? Did everyone hear the comment? Uh, Basically, Joanne uh, argued, if I understood her correctly, that in um, Locke's second treatise, he makes the argument that human beings are the property of God, not autonomous individuals. And it might be well worth reconsidering Locke's views on this question. Other questions? Yes. Maybe if you stand up and uh, sort of... (laughs)
2: Are these on? oh yeah is this is on um, well I don't know and I'm not I think that the danger of that is uh, less pronounced at the moment perhaps than it was uh, a few years ago but I I think the uh, uh, the causes of the withdrawal of fundamentalists uh, who after all did not represent all orthodox Protestants uh, let alone all Christians. Um, in the In the twenties uh, the the causes of that withdrawal I think were much uh, less um, far reaching than would be for example, uh, the redefinition of the institution of marriage for example, which I think could precipitate you know a horrendous kind of division, um, particularly if uh, if the full force of federal law is put behind uh, Well, you know, and I I think this could cut both ways, but particularly I think it would cut much more strongly if a redefinition were given the imprimatur of the Supreme Court and and were presented in an unanswerable way. Then I think people would be faced with uh, some very radical choices. And one place I think it would manifest itself would be in uh, the United States military, which has uh, an overwhelmingly um, conservative Christian largely evangelical uh, subculture, particularly in the Marines and some other places in the military. But I think it's, a, it's, it's the, the kind of a, a very, uh, very, very robust version of the civil religion, uh, maybe a little too robust for the comfort of a lot of us in this room, uh, exists in those extremely important precincts of American life, which because of decisions that we have made over the last... Uh, Thirty years or so uh, are more off the beaten path of the American mainstream we don 't have uh, the draft anymore we don't have uh, mandatory service of any kind as a as a democratizing or leveling element in American life where people of different uh, outlooks and different persuasions can kind of uh, encounter one another all not always in the most pleasant way but uh, uh, somebody uh, uh, Oh, I can't think of who it was, once said the only time that, the, that, that Americans really encounter people from all walks of life is when they go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to renew their <laughs> license. Um, and I think uh, uh, it, it, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I think it, it, um, what I've just said about the subculture of the American military, I think is probably going to come to a surprise to a number of people in the audience. I think it's incontrovertibly so. And I think if you have a um, – uh, all volunteer force of, of the most powerful nation in human history um, is set in a position in which um, its uh, profoundest religious and nationalist commitments are called into question by the actions of uh, the secular government. I mean, having Bill Clinton as the Commander-in-Chief would only be a small glimpse into that abyss, which I hope we never see.
3: Can I address the law question while I remember sure. it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think I finally disagree with you, but I, I don't think everything stands or falls on the correct exegesis or textual interpretation of Locke. The point I would make is that a text like uh, Section 6 of the Second Treatise is open to, there's a kind of amb- ambiguity inherent in the text, and it's certainly open to a reading that that leans in the direction of self-ownership. It's also, there's certainly some, Rhetorical emphasis in the text on man as the property of God, Locke leaves us with that ambiguity. One would need, I think, to have a, you know, some kind of perspective on art, Locke's right of, art of writing. But the reason why I'm skeptical of the more sort of generous hermeneutic or traditionalist reading of Locke is that we read in a book like the Essay Concerning Human Understanding that morality itself is a construction. That notions like murder, these mixed modes that man construct, it's kind of arbitrary psychology. It had profound influence on the Encyclopédists in France and indirectly through the encyclopedias on the revolution itself. And by the way, one doesn't need, you know, to appeal to esoteric writing a la Leo Strauss to to make these points about Locke. I think this was, let's say, the traditional Catholic reading of Locke was how Locke was understood by 19, 18th and 19th century Catholics. It's uh, the way somebody like John Courtney Murray 40 years ago understood Locke, seeing this connection between Lockean psychology and Lockean moral philosophy and uh, a kind of nominalism. So it's certainly one legitimate and historically influential reading and appropriation of Locke. And uh, All I wanted to convey was not a to say that I I know Locke's deepest intention but to say that Lockean principles as refracted in the American founding are certainly open to that understanding, whether that's a radicalization of Locke or whether that's a kind of discerning of Locke's deepest intention. So you may be 100% right about Locke, but still Locke's principles and Locke's text give rise, I think, to that more radical or indeterminate conception of liberty. Yes.
1: Yes.
4: I'd like to ask for another about-
2: Did everyone hear that? Oh, okay. Yeah, can I go ahead and answer it? Did mm-hmm. I, I didn't know whether you were collecting questions or what. No. Oh, I think that's easy. Um, the in the first place, uh, I mean, the the, the the thinking in in terms of um, Protestant re, Christian reasoning on this, uh, which would proceed from reasoning from the Bible primarily. Uh, there's no uh, clear scriptural basis for uh, the institution of racial segregation. Uh, the civil rights movement itself was uh, heavily uh, Protestant religious movement uh, I think the scholarship on that recently has finally brought that element into into perspective David Chappelle's book A Stone of Hope is I think a t- terrific uh, example This Charles Marsh's work there's a whole bunch of these sorts of things but more importantly talking about uh, white uh, conservative response I mean I think uh, Uh, Some of which, I mean, what happened, uh, what you described as happening, of course, did happen. But what I think it's important that you also include in the picture is the the fact that, uh, for example, when the Brown decision came down in 1954, it was endorsed almost immediately by the major southern uh, denominational uh, entities, the southern Baptists, the southern uh, Presbyterians, the southern Methodists, all endorsed it. Uh, there, there was not uh, there was not the kind of resistance coming from the uh, the denominational bureaucracies and the, the the clergy that I think is suggested by your question. I think, uh, uh, and this David again, I would refer you to David Chappelle's book uh, as as uh, as a very good source on this. That um, in fact it was the uh, it was politicians making constitutional arguments for. Uh, Segregation for states rights for uh, the the uh, admissibility of uh, this peculiar institution as a settled social institution, which of course had only been settled for a few years really, but uh, those kinds of arguments, and they didn 't carry the day, but they were not primarily religious arguments uh, in the, in the south so uh, that and now it seems to me on the case of of marriage then you 're dealing with an institution that is very there 's a very clear um, orientation in in the in the, the Christian Bible as uh, it's read through the sort of traditional Protestant hermeneutic um, for um, for uh, uh, the, the traditional uh, heterosexual understanding of marriage uh, from the Book of Genesis on. So I think it's a much more uh, uh, dramatic and radical challenge to the the tradition of Christian thought and practice uh, uh, over the centuries than, than uh, the attack on racial segregation in the South, which just I think, a, uh, uh, a very localized, uh, very socially um, enculturated, and, and very weak, very weak without much grounding. I mean, the, the, the religious arguments on the other side were much stronger and more fervent.
3: Yeah, I was just going to add, I think what was so offensive about the the majority decision in the Massachusetts Supreme Court case that legalized homosexual marriage was the assumption on the part of the majority that there could be no rational argument against gay marriage. The assumption that it is ipso facto rooted in superstition or irrationality. Since, since you have long civilizational traditions rooted in the common experience of mankind and the national practice of every nation on the face of the earth and every scriptural tradition, one has serious philosophical and natural law, law arguments, one has the agreement of every thinker from Kant and Aristotle to the Christians, one ought to at least be open to the possibility that there can be reasonable <laughs> arguments against it and leave this to the discussion and the self-governance of free people. The assumption that this is just racist and that an academic or judicial clerisy can, uh, uh, you know, come up with a decision, impose it on people, I mean, it's crazy. And it will lead, I think, as Bill suggested in his remarks, it will lead to the radicalization of all sorts of ordinary Americans who see this as a betrayal of their own moral traditions, their own national self-understanding. And it will it will make the consequences, the political divisions in this country on Roe versus Wade look very petty very small. So in the name of liberalism and civility, we we ought to be very careful.
1: Would you stand and maybe even...
5: I was (laughs) thinking My question is completely different, and I was very interested to uh, listen to yesterday uh, as Europeans. European. So we were, uh, especially my colleague uh, from Germany and I, we were speaking all. <laughs> uh, history, the same uh, uh, sacrifice for, for the, the, the nation.
2: That's a wonderful question. I hope everybody could hear every bit of it because it, uh, if you didn't, uh, too bad. <laughs> but um, uh, oh, that's just uh, Why don't very. You summarize uh, it, Bill. Then. Well, uh, oh, okay. Uh, she, he's very interested in the question of, of memory and how, um, in particular, public places can uh, serve as. Uh, places of memory, places that crystallize memory and amplify and reflect it. Uh, and uh, that this was uh, something that it, it has been made a little more problematic since the Vietnam War um, in America. And that Ground Zero in particular uh, presents uh, a, a, a particular problem. What is to be remembered? What is to be commemorated? And how can it be done in a way that will speak to um, to people who are um, you know, immigrants in the future and uh, who, who will have nothing to uh, directly relate to this particular episode. Um, is that an adequate, bare bones sort of? Uh, is there anything I should add to that? Uh, is that? Is there anything I should add to that as a uh, summary of your I question? I wants to know if that's an accurate
3: summary? Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was a remark more than
2: a. Well, it's good. <laughs> Let me make a couple of comments. Uh, uh, first, place about Vietnam. Uh, I, I mean, I think, um, as you probably know, uh, for all kinds of reasons, including the most uh, venial, venial, <laughs> both words apply reasons, uh, we still don't know what's going to be done with that site, uh, and, and it's actually too Byzantine uh, uh, a process for me to. To follow, or characterize the state, to play with it, but maybe somebody here knows more than I do. But um, uh, I think, looking beyond uh, all the ways in which builders and real estate uh, uh, prices and and all these other factors figure in, which they undoubtedly do, um, it we really don't know yet what we want. I think there's no uh, clear consensus. There's been a lot of Proposals made, some of them quite imaginative, some of them quite appalling about what should be done with that site. But there is no uh, there's nothing even remotely approaching a consensus. And I think that reflects a substantive working through process that we are or should be going through. And um, you know, I had some sense even today in bringing up the question of ground zero that some people in the audience are going to say yes. Uh, some people are going to say, that's so passe. You know, if you'd said that this two years ago, I'd agree. But, we, you know, we're not even thinking about it anymore. We've moved beyond it in our great American forgetfulness. Uh, and, and, and I don't know that we're doing a very good job, or we ever do a very good job as Americans, of working through things. But I, will, I think the Vietnam Memorial that was finally erected in Washington through much uh, fighting and controversy and the conservatives were very unhappy with it. I think, uh, and I still have a sense that Dan Mahoney may hit me for saying this, but I think it was a remarkably successful uh, it, memorial. That it, it, it remembered uh, the right things in the right way. Uh, it has been extremely meaningful to the people who were themselves veterans of that war and their families. Uh, it is a kind of collective tombstone, this sort of black, swa- you know, kind of swatch uh, um, in the ground, uh, and it, it's not Trajan's Column. <laughs> it, it is the opposite of Trajan's Column. It's a, it is a, an unmonumental monument, uh, and yet I think it 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 was it was the right thing because it it served memory in in a genuine way. Uh, uh, in, a, in an authentic way. It didn't try to construct memory as historians often talk about these things. Can um, I
5: just add the one question? Well, yeah. mean, it was not very good, but uh, my question
0: was, can be uh, uh, a uh, excuse
5: me, can be uh, uh, ground zero place of memory? Yeah. Of how can we integrate this specific but important uh, event yeah. in, the, in, in, in the civic tradition
2: of, of uh, the yeah let me just say about that. I mean the reason I found your question so fascinating is that it's precisely that the um, the World Trade Centers and, and the people who died there many of them were not Americans. Not American citizens. Many of them, they, they um, and indeed, there's some evidence that one of the reasons Al Qaeda chose it as a target is partly uh, uh, not just because they were the tallest buildings around, but because they in some way <coughs> represented uh, global capitalism, you know, the, 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 the the global uh, multinational order of things. And, uh, um, and I think consequently, any way of memorializing Ground Zero has to take into its purview the fact that, uh, that, that the, the America uh, that's remembering it is not the same America that remembers Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial, that it, it is, there's is some way in which we need to remember this in a way that takes cognizance of the fact that there were all these, that it was an event for the world and not just an event for America, and that there were all these people who were affected directly and indirectly by it, who were not American citizens. Uh, I, I agree. I think that's part of the challenge of memorializing this rightly is not to memorialize it in a in a provincially American way, and I think that's one reason we're struggling with it. We we just don't have uh, the language, the the, the sort of um, visual vocabulary for that yet. But I, I, uh, I hope, you know, the Vietnam Memorial gives me, that That was a tremendous conflict. There was so much unhappiness. And yet in the end, I think it did the job. So I the think. The
5: response,
2: yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties too, as you spoke about c- civic memory, I think there's always a tendency with something like uh, uh, honoring the dead is turning this merely into a kind of humanitarian remembrance. You know, the injustice that's done to human beings, the emphasis on suffering, a fundamentally non-civic and non-political response, which is totally appropriate on one level, but doesn't serve that larger goal of reminding why this ought to be of interest to the entire civic community. And I think that has something to do with the difficulty. We respond to the 9-11 attacks very differently. Some responses are quite humanitarian. Some are more political. This is a reminder of the conflict between civilization and nihilism. By the way, I would say, in addressing one of your earlier points, I do think that if we care at all about civic inculturation, we do have to make the American past part of the, past, of the experience of all immigrants. So my, my grandmother came here from Ireland in 1905. It doesn't make the Civil War or the American Revolution any less, less relevant to us. I think of those French school teachers in Cameroon and Ivory Coast saying, our ancestors the Gauls. Now, <laughs> of course, there was a problem with that given the reality of empire, but uh, – yeah. <laughs> Priscilla, <laughs> yeah, you have the next question.
4: Right. Well, after yesterday's picture of
6: Europe as a continent in which a civic religion is either absent
2: or weak. Okay, here. Yeah, we use the
4: microphone.
2: My, <laughs> it's a... Oh,
6: no. No, 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 no. I can speak from your left. I'm comfortable in this position. <laughs> After yesterday's picture of Europe as a continent in which civic religion is either uh, very weak and in bad shape or absent at all. Now, it seems to me you have, if I have understood your papers correctly, you have provided us uh, with a very uh, different Image of civic religion in America. It seems to me that both your papers agree on two propositions. One, that there is indeed in America a strong civic religion and that it is a good thing that there is in America a strong civic religion. Particularly, you have emphasized the fact that uh, Professor McLean that the absence of civic religion would be more lamentable of any of the dangers of civic religion. And um, Mahoney has stressed that politics can never be entirely secular. That seems sweet to point in the direction that not only there is civic religion in America, and it is a good thing that there is and it should continue to exist. Now, I entirely agree with both your remarks, particularly the normative one, but I want to be sure that I, am, I agree for the right reason. <laughs> Maybe I agree for entirely wrong reason. My understanding is that you need civic religion because there are things that any state must be a, any political community must be able to do if it wants to continue to remain a free state. And I'm talking to, to be as as, uh, as short as possible. You need citizens prepared to practice solidarity. You need citizens prepared, if need be, to defend the independence of the state. You can never choose whether or not you, you need to defend your independence, even in the best possible scenario. You need military forces, police forces, magistrates who are willing to sacrifice themselves to protect legality and, uh, and to, uh, to, to be able to defend the rule of law. Now, if you do not have a civic religion, what could be the motivating forces to attain these goals? You have available you have available self-interest and moral arguments. Now, self-interest would never motivate anyone to sacrifice himself or herself, that's for sure. You can never say a soldier or a policeman, Look, try to get those mafiosi. You're gonna probably die because it's in your interest, in it. or you can never, you can never use a moral argument. Say if you put yourself in an original position, you see that in fact this would be the rational and right thing to do because it is absolutely right, but they won't do it. When it when it comes to things like defense. Uh, discharging civic obligations practicing solidarity you need to touch the passions you need to touch the feelings you need to touch the imaginations because imagination, passion and feelings are what make people act and uh, hence that's the place where you need something that is not just the law because the law simply tells you if you do this, you're incurring this sanction it doesn't persuade you Or moral arguments say this is right from this point of view. But neither the law nor the moral argument nor self-interest would be able to make citizens practice things that are absolutely necessary in a free state. Then we enter into religion. Rituals, narratives, symbols, memories... Heroes, martyrs—you enter in the dimensions that is, we political theorists of uh, classical formation we call—is the dimension of passions. Is it the real reason? Is this the main reason why you think it is a good thing to have a civic religion? Have I got it right?
2: I, I'd certainly agree with that. You know, your your broad characterization. I I think. Uh, I'd say that something like it is also inevitable, given the way, given these uh, uh, modalities of communion that are—I uh, love that term—that are that are part and parcel of the human condition, and uh, that if we, uh, if, if rather than invest ourselves in the project of sort of delousing public culture of all religious. Uh, symbols and references and anything that um, detracts from a totally rational and legalistic decision-making process, we instead accept that this is the way human beings operate and instead make sure that our civil religion does not become a pernicious one, which it can. And I hope I emphasized enough how dangerous I think it can be. Then I think we'll we'll be making a better use of our our time. But um, here's another way I like to think about it that may help clarify whether – I you know I've gotten you to sign on to the thing you want to sign on to or something else um I often think the comparison to a marriage is useful because one uh is and stays married um partly out of a sense that one's uh, one's mate one's spouse is an admirable person one is loyal partly because of the person is is admirable but also it's partly just because he or she is yours <laughs> and that there are times when lo- loyalty on the second grounds uh, supersedes the first
3: yeah I agree with, the, with everything you said as far as it went I do I do think there's a danger in a kind of one one-sided emphasis on civic republicanism to, oh I do think there's a danger in a kind of one side I mean I, I agree with everything you said about the fact that the political problem cannot be addressed solely on the grounds of self-interest. There's an element of the sacred inherent in politics as such that uh, all of that, I think, is profoundly true. I do think there's a tendency, however, in the civic republican tradition to uh, perhaps not do justice to the permanent tension between the claims of transcendental religion and the claims of civic religion. And I think to the extent that civic religion means... An effort to displace transcendental religion with some all-encompassing faith in the national community or with the uh, uh, this worldly imperative—it's a problem both for politics and religion. But that said, I think one can agree with everything one you said, and still admit that politics doesn't exhaust our loyalties. We
5: talked about the second, the second issue you mentioned is South
3: Right. Sure. South Very good.
2: <laughs> can, can, I, can I just say one more thing? Uh, I'm uh, thinking of partly of this question and the gentleman's uh, question about segregation a while back. That part of the genius uh, and greatness of Martin Luther King, I just happened to reread the uh, letter from the Birmingham jail last week. Uh, I was about to teach it. It is, is the way in which he uh, made use of the civil religion. In his own discourse, I mean, the king is constantly talking about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the the Bible, the Judeo-Christian tradition, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine. You know, it's all there, and he deploys it with real mastery in a way that uh, I think, for those with ears to hear, say, "My God, this is how this is our tradition." He's talking about, and so he's using the tradition as a standard to indict. Uh, a part of American life that that richly deserved indictment.
1: Thank you very much. The next panel uh, will commence at eleven fifteen, and if you join me in thanking yeah. our panelists. Please. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, this is a wonderful
3: little book. It's a uh, sort of general discussion of contemporary situation. The three S's on democracy, the nation, and religion. But oh, I've got you you to reflect part of the- uh-huh. the-